People are scared of connection. People don't see that as the natural part of work. We spend the majority of our time in these workplaces. So how do we create workplaces where it's normalized to be a human? There's something about that deep caring and deep sense of connection. That is what is necessary to be able to feed and grow your employees. Level of caring and connection is essential. I went through cancer treatment during an unfortunate time of COVID. I did that all by myself. I drove myself to my appointments. One particularly rough appointment, I'm like throwing up on the way there and right in the middle of chemo. A friend of mine who had also gone through chemo said, this process will distill you to your very essence. That is what came out of cancer for me. That distilling process, I think, was the biggest gift. In every organization, you got someone thinking about sales. You got someone thinking about like marketing or, or finance. You got to have a people person there. Somebody at that most senior strategic discussion needs to be thinking about the people. Otherwise, it is a world of transactions. He stops and he comes over to me and he looks me straight in the eye with this like laser focus. He says, I see you. And I just lost it. To be seen all the way deeply by someone that I respected without even knowing was transformational for me. It was a top five important things that happened to me in my life. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio. Today's guest is Sarah Gay, the president and CEO of Hawaii Employers Council. And thank you for coming today. Thanks, Evan. So when somebody meets you for the first time and asks you, Sarah, what do you do? How do you answer that? My first answer is that I'm the president and CEO of Hawaii Employers Council. But shortly after that, I'm a mom and a sister and a wife. And I grew up in the mainland and I moved here to Hawaii 19 years ago. And this is my home. So usually there's a little bit more to it than just the president and CEO of Hawaii Employers Council. How did you get here? I was working for the Job Corps program in Oregon. And I was living up in northwestern Oregon. And it was beautiful. It was in Astoria, Oregon, where they filmed The Goonies. That's what it's kind of known for. It was beautiful. And I love the job. We were working at at-risk youth. It was really a cool job. That said, we had not seen the sun literally in 90 days, like 90 calendar days. <laughs> and it was a particularly cold, rainy day. And the company that I worked for had just bid on a contract in Arizona. And we just found out we didn't get that contract. And so in the process of bidding, my head kind of went to the sunshine and just this cold, gray, rainy day, we find out we didn't get the contract and I was just over it. So I called my vice president and said, there's got to be something somewhere warmer. And she said, there's this thing in Hawaii. And I literally was like, great, boom, done. Like I didn't wait to hear about it or what it was. So we they transferred you? Yeah. So we had some follow-up conversations okay. and ended up moving seven weeks later, packed up my son and my husband at the time. And we moved here and landed in Waimanalo at the Job Corps Center. And what was your role? Yeah, at that time, I was the head of the academic program. So I was helping at-risk youth get their high school diplomas, GED, math, and reading attainment for employment, needed for employment. Okay. And yeah. then how long did you do that? I think it was six or seven years I was there. I really loved that job a lot. Yeah, it was really a great job. So you land smack dab in Waimanalo, yes. which has a pretty high population of Native Hawaiians. Yes. Right? So how was that for you transitioning into that 
community. I've always been so grateful for the fact that I landed in Waimanalo. It was a really hard adjustment. And when I look back, I think as the kids would say, it, I was probably pretty cringe. <laughs> was, you know, I see myself in my little Tiva sandals and, my, and I just think, oh, goodness. But I just didn't know what I didn't know. But I did know that I needed to be super respectful and I needed to listen and learn. And I did that. I learned a ton at the time. The Job Corps Center just did a fantastic job with their students around cultural awareness. And so you know, I got to learn all kinds of just amazing things really quickly from all the different student clubs. Funny story, within two weeks of, of <laughs> landing at the Job Corps Center, I found myself as the staff advisor to the Filipino Student Club. <laughs> and it was hilarious. I had no idea what that even meant. And so our first meeting, this young strapping painter student he says, Miss, you ever eat balut? And of course, I have no idea even what that is. I'm like, no, but trying to be respectful and open. I'm like, but I'd be willing to. And his eyes get all big. And he says, would you really? I said, yeah, sure. So the next meeting shows up and it was the funniest. We're on either end of this really long conference room table. And I have no idea what I'm getting into, but all of these students show up because they can't believe this thing is actually going to happen. And I'm like, oh, how neat that they all showed up. Look at all this engagement in the Filipino Student Club. So I get to the meeting and sure enough, in front of me, there's the balut egg. And on the other end of the table is this young man with his balut egg in front of him. And I still don't really know what I'm getting into. So I'm thinking, oh, it's just an egg. And he's like starting to sweat. He's looking very nervous. He says, Miss, you really going to do this? I'm like, yeah, let's try it. And he's like, really? I said, yes. And then I kind of look at it and I start sensing that maybe there's something more going on here. And I kind of looking at him, he's looking at me and this goes on for a long period of time. And then finally I said, maybe I, maybe I'm too scared to try it. And he starts laughing. He said, I knew it. And then later he came in my office. He said, miss, thank you so much. I've never eaten balut in my life and I didn't want to today. So yeah, that won me a lot of street cred with the students, but more than anything was just like a huge learning for me about just being open and like if I had known what it was, I probably would have said no and been too scared. But since it didn't even occur to be scared of what it was. So did you taste it at all? Well, we never even opened it. Have you but, seen people eat that before? Yes. After yeah. that, I realized what, like mm-hmm. how close I was to something that would have like really mm-hmm. been difficult for me, but I didn't even know. So it wasn't even scary. Yeah. 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 People who love that, they love it. Like right? they'll like yes. tap a little hole in yes. the top and be like, mm, oh, mm, yes. Mm. Like it's super delicious. <laughs> right. and, like, and then I watched it and like, wow. Yes. And it turns out the best part was the student didn't even want to eat it either. It was. Oh. I let him off the hook, which he was eternally grateful for. <laughs> so would you eat that now? Ooh, God, that's a good question. Or taste it. You don't have I would to eat probably the taste it. I would probably taste it. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's something my husband has taught me to be just really, really So if you taste respectful. it, like, because when you look at when you actually yeah, eat that, right? it's, it's basically for people who don't know, it's a baby chicken yeah. in the egg. And has that embryonic like fluid around it. Yeah. So like, would you taste the fluid? I think I'd have to taste the fluid because I don't uh-huh. think I could actually uh-huh. touch the bird. And itself. then, yeah. and then, would you bite the bird? I don't think I could do that. Oh. But I think I could taste. <laughs> I think I could at least taste the fluid out of respect. Yeah, yeah. I've actually never eaten it either. <laughs> 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 I like Filipino yeah. food. I, I just wouldn't. I, I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, and that I was wouldn't. always like one of those defining stories for me in my workplace. There, I feel like that was just about being open and honest and respectful, but also probably didn't even know what I didn't know yet. So it was easy to, I wouldn't even say it was brave because I didn't even know what I was afraid of. So So what story can you remember about that transitional time that Mm -hmm. would help someone else Mm -hmm. considering to move to Hawaii? So the Balut story is one of my favorites. And then the other one was within the first couple of days that I started there, 
I picked up the phone and I started making calls, outreach calls to all of our stakeholders and people out in the community. And I called the principal of the adult community school because our GED program was run in collaboration with them. He answers the phone and I said, hi, Gary, my name is Sarah. And I just launched into my spiel, right? And I just started saying who I was and where I was from. And, and he stopped me, he interrupted me and he said, <laughs> he said, I'm going to stop you. You're not from here, are you? And it just totally took me back. And I was like, no, I'm not. And I was a little offended. And I, I said, you know, but here I am. And I launched into my spiel again. And he said, I'm going to stop you again. Why don't you come over here? Let's have coffee. Let's talk story. And I'd really like to meet you. I said, okay. So I went to his office and we sat down and talked story. And in that first meeting, he said, you know, there's a certain way that you do this and you are not doing it the right way. So I'm going to help you. And he ended up being an amazing mentor for me. His name is Gary. He was a mentor for me throughout that entire job. He retired. And I've just always been so grateful that like he stopped me, right? Like he stopped me early enough to let me know this is not the way we do this here. We need to stop and take time and get to know each other. I never forgot that. Like, and I was so grateful that happened in the first couple of days because I probably would have continued to make phone calls like that if Gary hadn't stopped me. So what is it specifically that you would say, this is what you do? Versus yeah. not do. Yeah, you got to stop. You need to get to know the person. Be curious and talk story and get to know the person. Ask questions and be humble instead of starting with launching right into your story and business and stakeholders and all that stuff. It, we needed to connect as human beings first. You know, for Job Corps, that's like a job that typically people go in because they're passionate about it, mm. right? Yeah. So was there any particular meaningful story or heartwarming story or transitional story that you can remember about that time period? Yeah, just prior to coming to the Hawaii Job Corps Center, I was working at the one in Oregon. And one of the biggest highlights about that experience, we were in a really rural town in northwestern Oregon, really small town. Mm -hmm. And the Job Corps Center, at that time, there was a big influx of students from Sudan. And so here were all these students who had been brought by Catholic Charities to rural Oregon from Sudan, refugees who showed up and on the weekends, they would leave the center and go into town, right? And the people in town had no idea what was happening. These kids did not look like, sound like anybody that they were familiar with. So there was this sort of unspoken divide. And we were able to work with the local community radio station to get a, a weekly radio show to bring the students on and have them tell their stories, not not in an exploitive way, but their stories through their music, through their own actual stories of home, and it was a student-run weekly radio show that we put on where the students could just kind of tell their stories and, and show up and, and explain, not explain, but just, you know, kind of help the community understand who they were in just this really beautiful way with their music. They spoke Sudanese. There was a whole bunch of different languages. They spoke English. Okay. So it was in English. But a lot of the music was really different than anyone there had heard. So... It was just a really cool way of providing a venue for the students to tell their stories. And then the, the community really responded. It just kind of became this really awesome bridge between the two. So you gave them an opportunity to express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Tell their stories mm -hmm. and demystify. And the community just didn't know. They had no way of knowing. So in my kind of due diligence, I typed in Sarah Gay on YouTube and saw what popped up there, <laughs> right? Which were like some podcasts. There was a podcast one. Oh, no. There was something with the YWCA. <laughs> yeah. And so on, right? Yeah. So your journey kind of took you, I guess, from Job Corps into leading organization, for the most part, are primarily HR professionals. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And what I was listening to in that were the issues that are 
kind of prevalent in the workforce right yeah. now. Can you just in a nutshell say like these are the top three issues we're dealing with in the workplace? And then how would you as a parent prepare your kids for that? You know, I think the easy answer is talent attraction, retention, and engagement. But it's not that really. It's deeper than that. It's about people being able to bring their whole selves to work in a way that they can contribute meaningfully to something. That's one important piece. Work can be a conduit to something to help them have an improved life versus a grind that is like extractive from their life. So that's one piece. And then I would say another huge piece of this is just the idea of managers and leaders connecting with people in the workplace, like feeding and caring and growing the people who work with them and for them in their charge, right? I think those two things are the biggest to me. And then probably the last one is just the role of organizations overall just to contribute into the community. So it's not just the transactions that happen in work, but how are you contributing to something more important in your community? So those are the big three things, how people can be healthy and well at work, how managers can feed and grow and care for the people in their charge, and how organizations contribute in their community in a bigger way. And then how would you prepare the kids for that? So funny. So I was just sharing that I mentioned, I just went to see my son in Colorado. So he's a sophomore in college and he's working a job at the dining hall, right? It's a work study job. And we had this whole conversation around his supervisor. And he says, you know, I don't understand why anybody would want to go be a supervisor. They get 50 cents more an hour and yet they have to deal with everybody and deal with everyone's problems and help them. And I thought, wow. So we had a long conversation around not so much the obligation of leadership, but like the opportunity of leadership. He was seeing it all from the, you know, the reward was not worth the additional work of leading. Which makes sense. Right? Yeah, from his perspective. And I was like, but, you know, there's also this opportunity. Like, he gets to work with college students who, you know, granted, most of them are not there because they want to work in food service the rest of their life. But he can teach them work skills. He can teach them to be excited, to be professional, to show up, employability skills. Like, there's an opportunity there. So that, I think, that was an important conversation with my son about leadership in the workplace is not necessarily about position and authority, but there's an opportunity to care for and lead and like help grow the people who work for you in an organization. So, if you care about yeah. that. Well, that was the whole underlining right? thing. Like you got to care. you just want to get work done so yeah. you can get your paycheck and then get out of there, Yeah. then the 50 cents less is a better deal. Yeah. No, that, yeah. that was his perspective, right? It was mm-hmm. like... I don't, all the humbug stuff that's going to come along with having, mm. having to lead these people is not worth the additional 50 cents. But I was like, no, it's totally worth it because look, look at the impact you could have. So interesting because actually what you just mentioned before, which is being, bringing your whole self to work, right? Being yep. able to be yep. versus like have parts of you that can show up in parts that can't because it's not cool or not accepted. And then the ability for the manager to ha- basically have a connection with their workforce meaning that the manager really needs to have a connection with themselves as well so this is what i was thinking about this morning and i was thinking about it kind of a lot is that these are the areas that are lacking right right now but if you look at the school system yes the school system has spent a lot of time taking all of that stuff out yeah so get rid of the recess get rid of the arts programs get rid of the dance the engagement and put very hard into their stem you know science technology engineering math skills certain pieces of yourself that are going to have 
supposedly value into the workplace yep. and then send them out without the abilities to really co-regulate with one another. So then they don't know how to self-regulate themselves, right? So co-regulating meaning being able to utilize a groups and kind of nervous system yep. to soothe and calm and build connection. Now you can't do that. So then how are you supposed to self-regulate yourself when you don't even know how to co-regulate yourself? And then you're going to end up in a workplace where that's rec- uh, required and you're only allowed to bring in a portion of who you really are. I mean, totally makes sense to me why somebody would say, I'll take the lesser pay yeah. and this is one segment of my life and I'm out because it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think you're totally right. I think about my younger ones, right? In fourth grade and seventh grade. And just they're like already at that point in their mm-hmm. schooling, they hear Gert Project and the first, and they, they want nothing to do with it, right? Because that idea of having to work as a team, have to like flex that co-regulation muscle, that's hard for them. But the answer is not do less of it. It's continue to grow that muscle because you're going to have to be able to do that at work. I think the tough thing about that too is I was thinking about like parent-child relationships and my daughter and I are working on this project. It's purely based on like connection between a parent and a child. Yeah. And it's really the parent and the teen because yeah. she's a teen. And that's a lot of times where you start to see really strong breakdowns in like, oh my gosh, we don't understand each other. How do we actually engage? And, yeah. and so on. To me, that that is just a, as much of a key component of being able to perform at work as learning the next piece of AI or so on. Because if your relationships are disconnected, that goes with you. Yeah. Wherever you go, I mean, you're not going to hide from it. So that's yeah. what I was thinking about this morning. Yeah, I think there's a lot of connection between that certainly parent-teen relationship in the workplace. Like sometimes I'll catch myself using that analogy and I think, oh, I don't want to, I'm not trying to imply that our employees are children and need to be parented. That's not it. But there's something about that like deep caring and deep sense of connection. That is what is necessary, right? That is what is necessary to be able to feed and grow your employees, right? That, that, that level of caring and connection is essential to I a healthy workplace. I kind of think when you bring that up, though, that it's always a parent-child relationship. Mm. So you say, do these employees need to be parented yeah. because they're an yeah. adult, meaning like they're over 18 or whatever that may be? Well, the parts of them that are typically having issues at work are young. Yeah. So that is a parent-child relationship because when you have just child-child stuff going on then you'll see that really quickly it's like you know bill stop acting like a four-year-old yeah and it's like well barbara you're not my mom you know like (laughs) these are like a four-year-old and a six-year-old going at it right i mean that's really what's happening right here actually that's really valid yeah i think that's true if i think about like workplace issues Mm -hmm. right the interpersonal issues it is it's when people are acting like kids how many workplace issues are not people issues no totally (laughs) i don't think there are any workplace issues that are not people issues. they're all people issues right and they all come across your guys yes this is a good realization so much of it has to do with people's perceived internal value of themselves and that's all about the lessons they learned growing up, right? About the adults in their lives too, right? Right. So that's an interesting perspective that maybe I could ask you, so what about your growing up or your kind of upbringing could give us context around who you are today? So we would understand who Sarah Gay is right now based upon who Sarah Gay was back then. 
one of the things that shows up right away for me is my family is Scottish. My dad's side is Scottish and his dad, my grandfather, did a lot of work around our genealogy and that was a really important part of their family. So if you go to my dad's house, there's Scottish stuff all over and there's a Lindsay, Lindsay's my maiden name, there's a Lindsay clan and they've done all that stuff. Well, the motto for the Lindsay clan was endure fort and enduring was a big part of my growing up you endure, there's a kind of that like, oh, that sort of rugged Scottish, you know, you get through things, you just, you're strong and you endure. And, but that can be not awesome also, right? Like there's a limit to that. And so that message of endure was really present in my life growing up. And I think that has made me a very strong person and sometimes to a fault, right? But that internal strength and that motto of endure is with me all the time. Do you have a story that you can share that would illustrate that for us? Well, yeah, I'm three years out from cancer treatment. And I think that's like the best example, right? I went through cancer treatment during an unfortunate time of COVID. And so I did that all by myself. I drove myself to my appointments. I actually went to see my oncologist this morning. And so I was thinking about one particularly rough appointment. I'm like throwing up on the way there. And that's not about like sympathy, but there's a self-determination, self-reliance that goes along with endure. And again, I don't know that it's always super healthy, right? But it's any strength can also be a challenge as well if it's overplayed. And so I do think, while I think it makes me internally really strong, there's probably times where I don't ask for help that I need help. How are you defining endure? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Power through dissociate, ignore the pain, or what is it? No, it will end. There is light at the end of the tunnel is too light for it, but it will not last. You're stronger than it. You'll get through it. Not ignore it, but power through it. The pain, the struggle, the difficulty. Suffering? Yeah. Yeah. It's get through it. Like if you wait it out long enough, you will get through it. Yeah. It'll be okay. You will outlast it. Do they have any kind of history on that from the Scottish side? Was it during all those wars? Yeah, it's that whole like 300 piled on the bearskins and like fought through the snow and on the hard rocks and, you know, the cold, cold weather. Like it's just that, right? It just brings up all those pictures of the highlands and going through just really crappy, difficult elements and struggle and getting through it. Yeah, it doesn't last forever. That's kind of the endure thing. It doesn't last you get through it. When do you remember in your like childhood that was really apparent for you? I think it was about third grade, fourth grade. I think my parents were going through a divorce. I had skipped kindergarten, so I was young for my grade level. So I was trying to find friends. I had changed schools. Like There was just a lot of stuff going on. And I remember my teacher wrote comments in my report card about I don't remember exactly what the words were, but the message that I took away was like, Sarah's a fighter. Like she's going through a lot of stuff for a kid, but I am a thousand times confident she will get through this because she's a fighter. And I could see the report card still in my mind. So there was a little bit of this like kind of badge of honor to that. Mm -hmm. To my point though, then as an adult though, it's easy to overplay that because we all need help. But if you grow up thinking endure, pushing through is the answer. Sometimes it makes it really hard to ask for help when you need it. When have you seen that work to your disadvantage or to your detriment? 
the cancer thing, I probably should have asked for help then. I needed help and I didn't ask for it. Ask for help from who? I think probably my family, my friends. I think I was just more... Did you just not let them help? Yeah, I just didn't let them help. Like I'm going to handle this on my own. Yeah, like I got it. I, I don't think I told people when I had appointments. I would just go. My family on the mainland all knew, but like weekly check-ins but not like when it's okay i talk about this yeah it's okay Okay. yeah it's okay okay. but yeah i mean you just get through it i guess is that what happened then you just got through it well in that particular case i would say i got through it but there were just a ton of gifts in that process tons of gifts in that process and so i think for me there are rewards for getting through there are rewards for enduring yeah so what would be the gifts being tested to your just core, physically, mentally, and going through a lot of difficult things. You know you're capable. It's like every time you get through something, you know you're more capable now than you thought you were before. And I've always sort of wondered, like you see elite athletes or people do those, you know, climb Everest or whatever, and you think, gosh, what is that like to be on the other side of that? There's a feeling for me of that after going through cancer treatment. Like Mm -hmm. if I can go through that, I can go through anything. So... There is a reward, a a reinforcement, I think, of believing in my own strength. Was there a piece in there where you had to surrender? Mm Mm-hmm. Hugely. So one of the other gifts was, well, two things. One was a belief. So during chemo, I fell into a pretty regular pattern of I would get treatment on a Friday. I would be tired, go home, feel okay through the weekend by about Monday, start getting sick Tuesday, get really sick Wednesday, be really not good. And then it would pick back up. Right. So there just became this like reassurance that as bad as it would get, I would know, okay, two more days and it's going to clear up. So there was this like really deep reassurance that it would not last. It would pass. Were you working at the same time? Yes. Full time? It was kind of right in the throes of COVID. So I'm not sure anybody's like whatever we were. Maybe we were all working extra full time. You couldn't full-time. get a break though because you're in HR. That's true. And you're in insurance. That's true. I was super grateful that my work let me work when I could work. And so when you're going through that, you're taking a lot of like steroids and whatnot that would keep you up all night. So I could work when I couldn't sleep. I could work. And then when I was just not able to work, I could rest. So it all worked out. So if your body could talk to you, during that time period, what would it have told you? It was about distraction, right? And we were working on a particularly cool project that I really, really enjoyed. And so I think it was a distraction because I didn't want to think about, you know, other things that were really present, right? But you're distracting from what? From the cancer and all that? Mm. Yeah. So your body would tell you that it wants to distract itself by working? Mm. Yeah. And I I remember doing this, I got this, I'm a puzzle person. I love doing puzzles. And my brother sent me this ridiculous 3D Harry Potter puzzle that's like 7 million pieces. And I just remember doing that thing for, I think it was like 21 hours straight. And I could not not finish that puzzle. But it was this like focus on something that was really helpful. Yeah. So it was a distraction. So if if the cancer had a lesson to teach you, what would that lesson have been? I just shared this story recently. When I was going through that situation, right in the middle of chemo, a friend of mine who had also gone through chemo said, this process will distill you to your very essence. 
And I was like, oh, that sounds important. And so I kind of like stuck it in my back pocket. And I just remembered that quote for a long time, but I never really thought about what it actually meant. And then recently I was in Kauai and went to the Kaloa Rum Distillery and we were in the distillery room and a colleague of mine was explaining that whole process and like how you put all of these raw ingredients together into this still and then you put it under a ton of pressure, right? You heat it up and then in the process of heating it up, the steam rises and then you condense the steam. And when you condense the steam, what comes out of that is something really clear, really pure and really strong. And that is what came out of cancer for me. I had, I have clarity that I never would have had before about my mission, my purpose, the, the truly what is most important to me. And that endurance though is now connected to a strength I didn't know I had before. And a, just a core fundamental strength that look, once you've gone through something like that, like bring it on. It just flips a switch that nothing else really matters except for those things that really matter now. That distilling process, I think, was the biggest gift. So the strength that you talk about, where yeah. does that live? Like, where does it originate it's from? Right at the bottom of my ribs. It's absolutely my core. Yeah. So like solar plexus? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then what were you clear about? What are you so clear about now? My family, my kids, and my husband mean more to me than anything in the whole wide world. It, and, and I've always said that, but I didn't act like it. And now that is true. And so I make decisions based on that that I don't think I made before. My opinion matters. I have value and things that I need to say that I'm going to say now. I wasn't brave enough to say them before. There was a million reasons not to say those things, but they matter now. And I think probably one of the most important things is my intuition and my instincts. I just trust that now. I trust that way more than I ever did before. I listen to it. It's a thing for me now. Just there's just a level of clarity that I never had before. So the expression of like your opinions, would that be in a professional realm or personal or just all of the above? All of it. All of it. And it doesn't mean that now like it's, I'm a jerk and I just go around like just, you know, total loose cannon. But I find a way to now sort of say the things I need to say. Yeah. yeah. Do you notice that what you just said in your clarity it is exactly the same as what you said in the issues that you see with the workplace? Yes. And that is why I'm in the role that I'm in. That is why, like, that level of clarity is driving so many interesting changes in my life, right? The role mm. that I'm in right now, the reason I'm in that role is because I have that clarity around, I believe strongly in workplaces, and I believe that workplaces play a specific role in people's lives. And Hawaii Employers Council has an opportunity to influence that with our membership and with just employers in Hawaii as a whole. So how? How will they do that? Well... You know, we have 800 members. We One of our core competencies is training and the way that we infuse those messages, right? Like, you know, it's shifting manager training from the compliance perspective, which is important. Absolutely. That's, that's always going to be important to be legal and compliant and feeding and caring and growing for people, right? Like, so being able to infuse that caring requirement, that's one example of the way that I can take this personal clarity and it, it shows up in the world. What was feeding, caring, and growing, and growing people? Yeah. What do they need that you see? They need to feel like they value, like they matter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that may not be at work. Then like, how do you train that? I want people who lead people to understand that they need to get that out of their people. They need to understand that in their people. So my role is 
in my organization is if you're a manager, one of the things I'm going to teach you in addition to be compliant and all those things is also to care and value your people, understand what they need to be valued, each individual. And what if that person doesn't know how to care and value themselves? Mm -hmm. Then how do they (laughs) fill from a bucket that's empty? I think probably what we can do is help them understand that and then encourage them and normalize that it's okay to go work on that. Find resources to help you figure that out, right? What resources would they have for that? Uh, Things like, you know, I'm a huge, huge advocate of EAPs and not that those are going to be able to fix the problem, but those might at least point them in the right direction to connect them with, whether it's a counselor or a psychologist or, or a mental health professional that can help them. Even if it's the first six free visits, it's opened the door, right, to create that. Can you explain EAPs for anyone who might not know what that is? Sure. So EAP is an employee assistance program, and we have several really great providers here in Hawaii. An employer would purchase an EAP program for their employees it's really a service so you go to one of the providers and they have different packages and so a a pretty standard package would be for this particular employer for a certain annual rate that allows all of their employees a certain number of visits with the eap provider and then some eap providers are actual licensed healthcare providers themselves some are more of like a clearinghouse that you call them with an issue and then they direct you out so they're sort of like the service it's like a one on one for the yeah. most part yeah oh. it's not just mental health services though they usually help whether it's mental health issues might be financial support might be legal support in some cases even so they tend to be a clearing house to help your employees with all of that other life stuff that might make work really challenging right and so They're also a really, for employers who are like, ah, I don't want to be their therapist. It's a really great third party who that's what they do really well. Well, most people would not be able to be their therapist. And they shouldn't try to be, right? That's not your role. But if you have an EAP solution, you're able to get them over to the people who can help them in a really supportive, anonymous way. That's the other really cool thing about EAPs. The employer never finds out who accessed that. You just know account. You don't know names. It's completely anonymous. Yeah. like coaching fall under that too? Yeah, I think coaching can be really helpful for employees. That said, I do think sometimes coaching, it's like so many other things, I think you really got to do your due diligence on what the need is, right? And I think sometimes people will think it's a coach because maybe they're having challenges around performance or maybe they're having challenges around you know something that shows up really tactical at work. But what it might actually be is something that's going on at home. Maybe there's something going on with their kid or their teenager that's distracting them. And the line between coach and therapist, I think, is always a challenging one. And so I think it all starts with making sure that the employee kind of knows what they need. And I think that's, we can help with that part. And how would you help with that part? Having a conversation with an employee around, here's what I'm seeing and being a mirror to say, we don't need to have any judgments on it, but what am I seeing? I'm seeing you showing up late to work. You know, I'm seeing you missing deadlines, I'm seeing you being distracted, and I'm concerned. What do you need? So just being able to have those kind of conversations, not why, not how can I help necessarily, but what do you need? Yeah. And if the employee does not feel like they can bring their full self to work, mm-hmm. they don't have a manager yeah. that can hold that space properly or have the relationship there and then they don't feel a sense of community. And if they're not really in tune with themselves about being able to even discern the actual need because the typical need is going to be deeper. Yeah. So whatever presents itself is not ever ever that. That's like just what's on the surface. Right. Then, Then how do they do that? I think 
one of the things that we can do as employers is provide opportunities for employees to like systematize the practice of self-reflection, right? And so whether that's in one-on-ones, whether that's in your performance management system, just start building the muscle of self-reflection because I think eventually that's how that shows up. But you're right. Not everybody has learned that or built that muscle of self. Well, I say it's like super small percentage. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, that's true. I mean, let's, I think let's call true. it almost none. I think that's true. Yeah. So maybe one of the things we can start with is just creating space and helping build that muscle. Yeah. And then for that, do you folks have programs around that? In talking about leadership and manager development, we do talk about a coaching mindset. And if a manager is coming in with a coaching mindset, that's part of that, right? Work with the manager and their employee. The manager is going to show up asking the employee to self-reflect a little bit. So yeah, I would say it is there. You know, and, and something like that, though, sometimes that can feel like an attack. Agree. If there's no empathy there, if there's no connection. So the way I kind of look at this whole piece is that the same way I'm wearing yeah. my Pono Shim yeah. shirt, right? Right? Because we both friends with Pono Shim, the late Pono Shim. And then it's all connection. Every single thing that you yeah. just mentioned is connection. If the connection is weak between somebody and themselves or somebody and another person or the space between us or yeah. us and our role then you see it showing up in things like on your surveys, like lack of engagement, attrition, hard to recruit, and all those types of things. It comes down to that specific like core piece to me. Yep. And I think what you're talking about is this idea of how do we help? People are scared of connection, I think. People don't see that as the natural part of, of work, right? But how can we create workplaces? Because we spend the majority of our time in these workplaces. So how do we create workplaces where it's normalized to be a human? It's a safe space. Yeah. Because you ain't coming as everything if it ain't safe. Right. We will protect or hide against that. It's how do you create the safe space in the work environment? Yeah. And then we so go that back somebody to... can come as their whole self. And what you talked about is how do you get managers who can create those safe spaces themselves? And they've got to be healthy and well themselves it's in order to do that. It's not actually even managers. Right. It's actually the leadership. It's the top. I totally agree. It's number one at the top because it's like, so I went through, as you know, kind of a, what seemed long, but the last number of years, of an immense amount of like just personal journey yeah. and so on. So my daughter will call me like new dad now, right? She'll say, this is new dad. That's old dad. And trust me, old dad's still around and can come out <laughs> all the time, but it's quite a bit less. And it's interesting to see it from my kid's perspective because I'll ask them like, wait, what are you talking about? And like, you know, the old dad would just rage, mm -hmm. rage on us. And they use the same terminology I used. They said, your ability to self-regulate was zero. I said, so pretty low. It's like zero. There's nothing lower. I go, so we're, we're saying it's pretty low, right? So, <laughs> and they said, well, what is now? And they, I think my, my son told me something like eight. Oh, I was wow. like, I was like, that's Goodness. a huge gain, dude. Yeah. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, wow. yeah. You're so different on that. To me, it has to come from the top yeah. because the environment cannot change. Otherwise. Yeah. So I was watching this thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger yesterday. It was an interview he had on Rich Roll Podcast, which is a good podcast. I like it. And Arnold was talking about that people are, are weak now and they have to get stronger, which, okay, that makes okay. Yeah. We got to kind of yeah. toughen up a bit. He said, what I would do to my kids is that if they don't want to do what they're doing. He basically said like his daughter would put the shoes by the fireplace. He told her like three times and he kept telling her it's going to go into the fire. So he threw the shoes into the fire. And then if you don't clean your bed or something, okay, eventually then the bed gets thrown out the window or something. And then now you have to go take your mattress and put it up and so on. And he said, you know, initially my daughters would be upset about that, but now they're adults 
And guess what? Now they do it themselves and so on. And, I'm, I was, and he was proud of it. And I was thinking, oh, dude, that's generational trauma <laughs> yeah, right there. Right. That's that just because that's all they learned. It doesn't trauma. mean it's right. That's developmental trauma right there. <laughs> right. Like, and that, to me, reminded me of like what my kids would describe yeah. as like old dad. I really like the quote, which I say in almost every episode that we do, by Resma Menachem from my grandmother's hands, which is, Trauma decontextualized, and decontextualized means like over time it's decontextualized, right? Like the Scottish, all that war and stuff, yeah. all that trauma yeah. is decontextualized over time. You forget about it, yeah. right? But trauma decontextualized over um, in a people yeah. looks like culture. Yeah. Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits. Yeah. Trauma decontextualized in a person looks like a personality. Yeah. And I added in trauma decontextualized in a company looks like the company's culture. Yeah. So until you really gain the context on why these things happen, how they go about, it's really hard to understand what's going on in front of us. Yeah. Right? Totally. And, you know, the thing is, I think most people want to do a really good job. Like their work yeah. matters to them. They show up every day. They work hard. They give up their family time, their sleeping time, whatever, to do this thing. Even the most disengaged, there's something about their value connected to that job that they're doing. And I think starting from that, remembering that, that when we start messing with and telling people they're not doing it right or well or they didn't do a good job, that connects to value really, really fast. Oh, absolutely. So how do we make sure that like, you got to pay attention to that? It doesn't mean you tell everybody they're doing a great job when they're not. You, as a matter of fact, helping somebody do a better job is a great way to help them, like help them figure out how to grow that value. That's a gift. Mm-hmm. But just being mindful of this idea of diminishing people at work and what that does beyond the transactions they're doing, what that does to them and their value. That's what I mean by the feeding and growing of people. Yeah. recognizing that. I think we're talking about the same thing yep. because that Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of example I was using it works right yeah. I can scare the crap it out of my kids work. and it'll work yeah. like, but, and I can shame them yep. I will shame whatever you can shame people into doing stuff yeah. that works yeah. you can force them into stuff and that actually works in the short term but in the long term that causes damage yeah right yeah. that causes damage so yeah. how do you heal the organization in the proper way so that people can actually come as their whole selves right. without worry about am I being judged because the judgment piece in there is dangerous. Yep. Right? And everything is judged, good, bad, right, judged. wrong. We're always ju- going to have that judgment in place. So to me, it's, it starts with the leader. So it becomes really hard when the leader of the organization says, okay, you know what? There's problems with my staff and so on. And I need you to come in and fix that. Yeah. When really what it is is the three fingers pointing directly back at the leader and it's, it's a tough piece because the people at the top of the organizations to me what i see are the ones with the most unresolved trauma yeah and but the, the hardest thing there is that what they've been doing for the last 40 years is what got them to their quote yeah, unquote works. success yeah, so like be what's the, and it makes happen. totally Super exactly helpful. and as a matter of fact they know how to get the other things all done so mm-hmm. it's a difficult pill to swallow to say you're the problem when actually you're quite successful it's all those other people who aren't quite as successful yet who still work under you because they haven't become as successful so clearly they're the problem not you you know what i mean well performance and a healthy organization are two not necessarily correlated pieces right i think we all know very clearly (laughs) of organizations in a very intimate way that have high performance cannot retain people yeah and have an extraordinarily great public image. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It's how you define performance, right? I mean, yeah. if you I mean, can if define you performance at, you, as from the, the health and wellness of your just people. your bottom line on yeah. your financials, then right. 
great performance by constantly wearing wearing out people and so on. Yeah. But I was listening to one. I, you were talking with the woman from Ponho School. Well, and Raquel. Raquel, mm-hmm. right? And then you're saying that typically to move somebody, you need yeah. a twenty percent increase in pay and mm-hmm. so on. I can tell you right now that is not actually. I, I don't see that personally. Now that becomes Garen's. Like, yeah. okay, if I can yeah. pull you a twenty yeah. percent pay as because as a recruiter, I can right. tell you this very clearly. Like, if it's twenty percent pay and increase in title or something like that, a bigger role, and that person's motivated and so on. Okay, now we're we're kind of talking. Yeah. Right. However. In today's day and age right now, the disgruntlement of like my boss, yeah. you know, I, I can't stand this environment. Yeah. I am not being valued here yeah. and so on. I don't need 10% pay. Yeah. I need equal pay yeah. even. Might even be less pay. Yeah. Because some of them are willing to leave without having to land on something right now. And these are like some of the company's top, top people. The ones where you're like, oh, they're in the commercial. <laughs> and they're like ready to go. Yeah. That's the gift of COVID, I think. So like parallel, when I was talking about the clarity that I got through cancer, I think a lot of people got a similar experience during COVID, right? Like people were faced with deep stuff, their mortality, they lost loved ones, they financially were scared. So like that reprioritization of what matters to me, it is not my paycheck as much. It's my time with my family. It's all those other things. And so again, I think that's another gift that comes out of struggle, right? Is People got reprioritized on what was more important to them, and it's not the paycheck. So that's the opportunity for me, and that's why I think conversations like this are happening now more than they were before. And I think that's why you're seeing employers or employees like more willing to make a move on culture and willing to make a move on good managers, and they're going to put up with it, right? And they don't have to as much, which is a good thing. So you know what I look at in terms of like HR leaders or HR people in general within the organization is I look at them as the first responders, Yeah, you know, the caregivers of the organization. And through this whole COVID piece, through this Lahaina, Maui, all of these things, they haven't had any break, like zero break. As they're looking at organizations and how do we care for them? The first thing that comes to my head is that idea of enduring, right? Like perhaps unhealthy enduring. Lasts for a certain amount of time until, I mean, like your car can endure if you gas it all the way until it doesn't. That's right. And I think HR as an industry, I think had one of the highest, there was like healthcare first responders and like HR, it was like 43% turnover during the peak of COVID just for that reason. Actually, it wasn't at the peak of COVID. I'm sorry. It was following because they got through and then they just like, I'm not doing this anymore because we were epidemiologists and people were looking to HR to make decisions in an incredibly uncertain environment. And then we would have to shift and make decisions that were, you know, layoffs. And it was really, really difficult time for HR people. So how do they take care of themselves? How do you make it safe for them to take care of themselves? That's probably where it has to start because similar to like having healthy leaders, I think you have to have healthy people people so that they can normalize that and they can speak from a place of experience instead of, you know, lacking credibility when you say you need to take all your time, you need to make sure you're not leaving PTO on the table, but everybody knows that HR person hasn't taken a day off in three years, right? So yeah, I think maybe there's a message there for leaders around support, you know, check in on your HR people, make sure they're doing okay and make it okay for them to take care of themselves for a little while. Because don't you think that most of the time the HR person is actually kind of in the middle? They're not necessarily yeah. at the top, yeah. right? You know, looking at recruiting mm-hmm. and so on, right? Mm-hmm. It's always going through a hiring manager at some point and then the HR is involved in there at a piece too. And there's tug of war to an extent of different values in terms of like different values that they feel are more important and yeah. then the other person feels that something else is more important. However, 
the brunt tends to fall on the HR. Yeah. Because that's why I see it's always like, you know, find me somebody better, somebody that can last. And my thought on that one is, how about work on your your skills? Because they left because of you. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) And that HR person knows it. Yeah. They see all the numbers, the turnover. Right. But their ability to influence that conversation yeah. and then is, how do they is even challenging. manage that yep. thing up because yeah. they got to make sure they don't get fired that's right. too yeah although right now in this environment it's pretty good to be an hr professional you can right just get now. another job kind yeah. of pretty easily <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true yeah. and i think that going again to that conversation on connection right hr as an industry is seeing a transformation because mm. there's the gift in it right is that idea that like yes they had to wear so many hats during covid but I don't know, I guess you would say the leverage that they gained in the organization, because suddenly they were decision makers, suddenly they were needed at the table. And so I think for years, HR people have said, we need a seat at the table, we don't have a seat at the table. And part of that we owned, like we were willing to be transactional personnel departments. But over the years, I think we're seeing that shift. And now in these last couple of years, you're definitely seeing it. You know, in every organization, you got someone thinking about sales, you got someone thinking about like marketing or, or finance, you got to have a people person there, you got to have and maybe in some organizations, it doesn't have to be a chief HR person or whatever. Maybe in some organizations, the senior leader wears that hat. But somebody at that most senior strategic discussion needs to be thinking about the people. Otherwise, it is a world of transactions. And that really does start with the senior leader, that the person at the top has to have an awareness of that. And if it's not their strength, they need to bring somebody in to do it. Because too many times it gets buried too deep in the organization. And you're right, those conversations end up just being, it's like a pass-through conversation, but there's not a strategic thought about leveraging the people potential in the organization. And just like you would with any of your other ingredients, your supply chain, your you know, goods and services, the people piece is the piece that makes it run. And that's not just like a cheesy people slogan, like that's actually true. Look at your salary line in your budget. If you cared that much about, you know, that line, that investment you're making, you need to get a return on it. Someone needs to be paying attention to that. So again, if it's not the senior leader, you got to have someone there thinking about the people, the human capital, however you want to define it. So what are some things that you've seen either done or implemented or tried that have been transformational? This is a very tactical one, but I point to this example because it matters. So in an organization, it's a well-known organization here in Hawaii, has a very, very, very strong culture. It's a, that's its differentiator. And they do a fantastic job with their culture. But culture really only matters. Culture is how things get done, right? It's, it's what does how- that mean to have a fan- Do you say they have a fantastic culture? They have a strong culture. Oh, strong culture. Strong culture. So in other words, their values live in the organization. They hire by them. They do performance appraisals by them. They're spoken about. They reward based on it. So it's one of the few organizations. And they live by it too? Um, like everybody's congruent on it where it's in, you know, like you wouldn't actually have to read it on the wall because people just live it? I think they try to. I think it's challenging because I think sometimes... Or does it live out of the CEO's head and then try to implement from a top, to, I don't you know, think top so. down? I think no? it's, they're better than most at oh, that. Okay. And that's why I would say it's oh. strong. And um, okay. that said, one of the mechanisms they use to, to make sure that that happens, and I don't know if it still happens, but they would do this really cool activity with new hires. They would take the core values and they would do this exercise where new hires had to go create a two-minute video to show the values in action. And it was just cool on so many so many levels like it 
made people be gritty. They didn't know how to make a video. There wasn't a lot of instructions. They just had to figure it out. It was a group project, so they had to connect with other new hires. But the best piece was it was like a self-correcting mechanism. Like if they created a video that you were like, oh, that is not the values in action. There was a perfect opportunity to correct that, right? To, to clarify what, what the thinking was. And then the videos got shared with the whole organization as like a kind of celebration of the videos. And so every month there's this reinforcement of this is how these live in our organization. That was a really great example of a mechanism that was pretty transformational in the bringing to life values. So it doesn't just live on someone's head or on the wall. I wonder how you know in that kind of situation if the values are the right values. So we just went through that in our organization. We just created our new strategic plan, new strategic direction. And we just asked, we just asked ourselves, like literally to the whole staff, we had an all staff meeting and I just said, now that we all are pretty clear on the direction, this is what we've said our values are. Are these, do these still feel like the right values for where we want to head? And we just broke into small groups and had discussions about it. And everyone said, not quite. We're not throwing them out, but we've got some defining to do about how they live today. And there might be some refining to do. So we just did that process. Yeah. And what'd you come up with? We're still, literally today, we are still refining it more in the kind of a word like accountability is something that that was there before and it's there still. That's still something that's like core to us. But what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. And that's more like I'm an owner of the problem and the solution. Like it's what you said earlier. The one finger pointing is three back at me. So it's like... So would that not necessarily be accountability and be a little bit more like Kuliana? It is more like Kuliana. Yes. It's thinking about accountability more like Kuliana versus policing. Where I think yeah. before our, our, the way we talked about accountability and the way it showed up, it was about the police. Yeah. Like, like you are accountable for this. It's very clear. And now it's more like, yes, we all take ownership. We have this like core responsibility for this whole thing, this mission we're trying to drive. It's a different way of thinking about accountability. One could say the values were still right. It's the subcontext and the behaviors. And how they come to life that changed. But that's an important exercise, I think, for organizations to think about. Like, how do we want to be? So how much more in that process do you need to do in order to get to something that's really crystal clear for everybody and that they all buy into it? Good question. I feel like we're pretty clear. So I need to socialize that and see if it's clear to others because I've spent a lot of time looking at it. So I'm afraid it might be clear to me, but not quite clear. So I worked on it. Our leadership team worked on it. We had a team of staff work on it. And then it just went back out to all those folks to say, where are we at? How close are we getting? And then how do you live it? So that's our next all staff meeting in October. When we share it out and we say, here's where we're at, that will be the small group breakouts is how are we going to live this? How's it going to show up in our organization? So in a nutshell, what would be the strategic plan that you could share? Hawaii Employers Council has been supporting employers for the last 80 years on HR solutions. And our HR solutions have been focused on labor compliance and employment law. And so we're expanding that out to really a more modern view of people and organizations. How do we support that holistic view? And we think that's done best through data. So leveraging data, we have we have 800 members. So we have a lot of employment data on best practices, getting that information, sharing it back out so people can make well-informed decisions. So it's data, it's expanding our solutions beyond compliance to some of these more strategic people-focused solutions. And then um, our membership model, thinking about what does it mean to be a member of HEC and how do we use that collective to convene people together to learn from each other, mm-hmm. not just best practices and sort of what the research says, but how do we convene membership? 
to connect. And then how are you going to do that? That gets pretty detailed into the plan. Or work in progress. Yeah, work in progress. Yeah. Of the data that you folks collect, what would be the data that is most actionable to know and we can do something. Yeah, that's the question for us moving forward because I think we have mechanisms for collecting data, but I think the data that we're collecting is outdated, right? HEC is known, Hawaii Employers Council is known really well for every year we survey our members and we say, what's the average salary increase you're projecting for next year? So like that's a data point that lots of people come to us for. What do we see? It's 3.2% increase. So everybody then sets their budgets based on that. But where we want to get to is like, what was the key retention strategy in hospitality in 2023? We want to get to, to just much more actionable data. So we need to figure out what those questions are and what those areas of focus would be to kind of guide our data collection moving forward. How much are you showing it costs to replace an employee? The benchmark number is always 120% of their annual salary, but I think it's way more than that. I think it's way more than that. And it, it probably depends on the role. You mentioned HR. You know, we have a lot of organizations have vacancies in their HR department right now. And you just think about the ripple effect of that quickly around important things like compensation, around hiring, around training, and like the things that HR people are overseeing that aren't getting done because there's vacancies. And then that like spiraling morale, right? And the textbook answer is 120% of the annual salary, but I think it's probably significantly higher than that. So you take a $60,000 person or $80,000 higher and I think it's far more expensive than that. Yeah. Like the aggregate cost over from the ripples that it causes within your organization. Yeah. I mean, you lose two people, even three at the same time. Oh, yeah. Now you have a whole different animal. Yeah. Which is what we're seeing happening. You don't often lose anymore one person. It seems like that starts one or two or three or four. So it's not often you isolated loss of a really key person. It's more like... It's that trickle oh, effect. Wow. Do you have numbers around that? Once the thing starts going, how many go? No, that would be interesting to get, though. That'd be really interesting. That'd and what interesting. could stop that? If they did exit interviews and if something that was showing as causality yeah, and not just as correlation right, right would be right. interesting. Yeah. The exit interviews are so hard in Hawaii, too, though, because people just don't want to rock the boat. It's one of two yeah, things. Nobody they're either like, either, right? Yeah, they're already onto something cool and exciting ahead of them and they don't want to leave on a bad note so everything's fine (laughs) everything's good it's fine it's not you it's me kind of thing right so it's hard to get at that kind of good data how are you guys seeing ai affecting things ai has is projected to have a huge impact in hr there's some really obvious things like helping with job descriptions and things like that but then there's some really cool things you can do with it around coaching one of the coolest things i've seen is using ai to be able to practice difficult conversations. So I played with it one day and I said, help me have a conversation with an employee around an attendance issue. It did it play it role modeled with me really well. And I said, you're letting me off the hook a little too easy. Like he was playing a very kind employee. I said, be a little more defensive. And they did. And so me practicing my skills to be able to have this difficult conversation. I think that's an excellent use of AI helping build skills and role model. What have you seen work well in terms of training people for difficult conversations? It's something that people are always asking about, like help us, give us a tool to have difficult conversations. And I think the biggest things that people tend to take away from those trainings are address early and often. People tend to, you know, myself included, you make up a story in your head and it grows and the longer you put off the conversation, the bigger it's become. And then you have a story in your head and, you know, you're not open and able Mm -hmm. to just show up for the conversation. So I think people tend to take away quick, early and often. 
And then this idea of the other primary takeaway for people usually is about staying curious, right? And checking your own stories before you have the conversation. You may think you're coming into a performance conversation because someone's late every Tuesday and you've got a story that they're lazy and disengaged, but you need to come into it curiously and invite the dialogue to really find out what's going on because it likely is not what your assumptions are about. So yeah, They're almost always wrong. Yeah, always. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The story in our head is, is typically... I mean, a lot of times it's not perfect. No, no. Yeah. And often we've vilified people and we've decided that they don't want to work. And, you know, then we find evidence to continue to support that. And so it's really just like check all those stories. And if you can, like, just let go of those, show up curious, ask the questions, invite the dialogue and see where that takes you. It comes back to the whole piece of connection. Yeah, completely. If there's no connection there, you're not going to have a very productive dialogue no matter what. Because right. when you're dealing with like a dyadic situation, like two people... It's very similar to couples therapy. Yeah. You know what I mean? The startup on that, whether it's soft, they call it like a soft startup, how you enter into that that yeah. conversation will like determine the entire thing on whether it goes, you know, one way or the other. Yes. And they're all very, very similar foundational kind of like practices and teachings. Yeah. That couples therapy would be very similar to that type of thing. So to me, like, okay, this is what you can say or so on. But if you don't have the connection there, it doesn't matter. Yeah. No no one's listening. They're just protecting against what they think is going to be coming next. Right. And I think for me, the potential breakthrough though, in those difficult conversations is if I'm working with the manager who's getting ready to have a difficult conversation, if I can get that manager to share with me some of the stories in their head and I can ask them, are you sure about that? What other potential things could be going on and sort of let them start seeing beyond their stories, then they can go in a little more open. And I do think even just a little more openness sometimes has the other person show up a little differently, like, oh, maybe we are going to be able to have a conversation here. So I haven't seen it too many times where it's like earth shattering, but it's more a process of a little more curiosity, a little more trust, a little more curiosity, a little more trust. Well, the hard thing is when you go into an engagement with the agenda already in mind and set the other person's defensive yeah, because they have to, because they're pushing in, they have to push back yeah, or they got to leave, right? Which in the younger generation now, it's just easier to leave. Yeah. And it's like, well, where'd where'd they all go? Right. It's just easier to leave. Right. So yeah. On things like this, if you look at the pattern, the way the pattern typically goes is like, this is what's frustrating me or so on. This is the behavior that shows up. These are Mm -hmm. the things that are on the surface. And it causes these emotions inside of me, right? right? Sadness, anger, whatever they may be. And then I'll create a story around that to make sense of it. And then from that story, I'll react to it. And then out of their reaction is because I'm afraid of something else that's happening. Yeah. When what I really need is something else. Yeah. And when you can really get down to what I really need is that. Yeah. And then the other side actually knows what that is. Both sides actually really know each other's true needs. Yeah. Yeah. Your solution is really quick after that. Yeah. Until then, it's gridlock. We teach managers to talk about the facts, like state the facts, the objective facts. You came in Tuesday at 930. You missed the report deadline. You went on vacation without ever submitting those those three things lead me to believe, lead me to feel, lead me the story. It's like I'm nonviolent myself, communication, right? It is nonviolent, right? Oh, okay, that's and nonviolent communication. Is, do I pattern. have that correct? And then wide open space. And then the beauty of that is, if then the other person can see from your perspective, these are my facts, and this is what that would lead me to believe. 
it's it becomes logical. It's a very logical conversation. So if you want to take it a little bit further then and you're going like NVC style, then it would be like this is what's happening. You're coming in late. I noticed that on Tuesday mm-hmm. came in late, Wednesday late, this one's late. And when I notice that I feel concerned, I feel worried, I feel a little bit dismissed. I'm mean, mm-hmm. trying to use ones mm-hmm. that are not right. like diagnosis of right. there's an opinion right. in there because what I need is to feel confident yep. in our work relationship right. and that was going on. So can I ask you to do this? Yeah. this that's kind of the pattern. I didn't yeah. do it as nicely and smoothly as yeah. it. Yeah. the guy yep. typically does it, but it's more along that. And then that way they can see the full right. kind of cycle. Because so, otherwise it comes as a, a complaint, a frustration, right, right, attack. Right. When we were talking earlier about how do you help people like create safe workplaces, things like that, more of those tools, they don't need to be deep mental health, you know, cognitive therapy kinds of things. But like those frameworks, the more we can teach people to engage in those kinds of frameworks and like give them the actual practical tools. I think that is really, really, really important. And as I'm saying that yeah. out loud, I'm thinking about what are some of those additional tools? we? What's well, that and having the proper guardrails in yeah, place. Yeah, because the frameworks create the guardrails, right? Well, you have to keep them within it. Yeah. Because the minute someone's like, well, let me clarify on that. Let me ask a question in regards to this or so on. And then judgment enters. And then now you have an argument. Yeah. Yeah. So the guardrails need to be pretty tightly in place yeah. when it's heated. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But they're pretty much universal. Right. So that exact same thing would work in the workplace. It would work in the house. Yep. It would work outside of that. It's yep. people are people. Yeah. People are people and that's it. Managers, leaders, those kind of conversations are hard and scary for the same reasons they're hard for them to have with their spouse. Same reason they're hard for them to have with their kid. Having them with a coworker is also super scary for them. So, Well, what happens is when, if you go even beyond that, where it went to, this is my need, you yeah. could even go into the earliest time I remember this pattern happening is this. Yeah. So if you have, you know, some type of traumatic event, trauma is not what happens to us it's what happens in us as a result of what happens to us right like the event itself or so on is traumatic yep but that tends to heal yeah so it's the trauma that's stuck inside of us that gets stuck because we didn't have the emotional support around that in order to let whatever needed to express itself it's stuck like on your phone if your phone lost connection during the update it's just spooling yeah it's like that yeah right and now what happens is these things happen at five it happened at seven happened at eight and it gets reinforced in there and what happens at work is my boss it unconsciously reminds me of this, all of that's going to get triggered at the same time. Right. And then it becomes this person. I, I just, I despise them. Yeah, right. And I need to leave. Yep. I see this all the time in terms of people wanting to leave their role to go somewhere else. And it becomes pretty apparent a lot of times. And that which is like, oh, my boss is my mom. My boss is my dad. Yeah. And I mean, it was unconscious. It's making me think about something around control too, right? Like I want to do a good job in my job. I want to be able to perform. I want to be successful, whatever that means in this role. That's why I'm there. And I lose agency. I'm not able to control some of those things. Some of those things don't feel like they're in my control. And so that is incredibly uncomfortable for a lot of people, right? And have a conversation about where it feels like you might be giving up some control. That's really, really difficult for people. When you notice that I don't have control in this area, then it becomes what part of you feels out of control. Right. I'm thinking about managers and leaders that have been particularly challenged in this space. That whole idea of like, I'll just do it myself. I'll just tell you what to do. I'll just throw your shoes in the fire to make it happen, right? Like I'm just going to make this happen versus building the relationship to get something done through 
our relationship. Does that make sense? So like my ability to exert control, I'm either just going to tell you you have to do it, right? Yeah. It's a strategy that's probably been around a long time. Yeah. Well, potentially generations. And going back to that idea of like the parent child, a lot of that is, I think, maybe related to control, right? Like kids not feeling in control of things and then growing up to be adults and leaders and that whole idea of not being able to control something is like triggering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how you become workaholic. Yeah, exactly. Because it's something that we can control. Right. Even blame is something that you can kind of control, right? If I blame something, at least I hold some control over that. And if you can trace that back to the earliest point, I mean, the earliest point may be your grandfather. Right. Or your great grandfather, actually. And it gets passed down. I think it's also complicated. I've thought about this a lot, too, as a parent and as a spouse. It's also complicated because at work, you get a performance review. Or, and even if you don't get a performance oh, yeah. review, you still get a merit increase. You get some sort of quantifiable recognition of you did good or you didn't do good, right? Just whatever that is. And, and that gets reinforced in a million ways every day, whether you're doing good or you're not doing good. And so I think like taking this idea of all of these sort of challenging traumas from our lives and then they come over to work where you're either reinforced doing good, not doing good. It makes it even more difficult, right? Because you're being assessed constantly on your ability to perform and being aware of these traumas or things that make it difficult or not even being aware of it. But there's these like things inside of you that are making it hard, right? Versus at home where you can screw up your kids, you can screw up your marriage or whatever, but like there's no one giving you that report card all the time. You know what I mean? So when we are young, like a baby, right? The number one thing is to stay alive. So in order to stay alive, we need to be valued by our caregivers, whoever those caregivers may be. Because if we're not valued by the caregivers and we get discarded or we get kicked out of our family or tribe, our chance of survival is very low, especially as a human, right? So everything is now becomes right or wrong, good or bad. And if I'm not right and good, and I'm on the other side, my chance of getting kicked out and dying is super yeah. high. Yeah. So the, fe- the feeling in there is death, right? Yeah. And the feeling of not being good enough and so on, that's shame. Yeah. Like something's wrong with me. I'm defective. People are going to find out and so on. And typically th- that is a verb. Somebody is shaming. Yeah. It's either somebody externally making that judgment or I took their energy internally. And now that internal energy as a critic makes this judgment and then that gets compiled throughout life and that becomes dangerous Yeah. because anytime now we're going into judgment, which is good, bad, right, wrong, that causes us to either run, flight, right, fight or freeze. Yeah. And that you see very clearly in the workplace if you look at it under yeah. that kind of lens. That's so helpful also to be thinking about this idea. I, I define it as the feeding and growing of people, but as a manager, you are defining right, wrong, and potentially shaming all day, every day, or reinforcing that Mm -hmm. feeling of shame. Holy cow, that's huge, right? Because that can make somebody do something by shaming them. It's done all the time. It's like super, super, like it's super effective. But but it's also not always intentional. Like if that's the only model you know, that's the only model you know. So that's you burn um, the shoes and throw them in the the thing. right? Right. So that's super helpful. Like how do we start helping managers be aware of that? It, it may not even be the way you intend the message to be received, but it likely is going to be received as a message of shame. So how can you caringly support, give that message in a way that helps the person grow, right? Yeah. Versus diminish. Actually, all of shame. these things. So good. Which is what I'll probably end up talking to you later. I've been constantly thinking about it, as you know, for like yeah. the last kind of super long. Yeah. 
And I think now what I've named it, because they still want to go into like trauma so much, but that freaks everybody out, <laughs> is really the connected leader. Yeah. It's really around the connected leader. And the connected leader is somebody that has a strong connection with themselves. Yeah. Which then means they can have strong connections with others. Yeah. And then help others have strong connections between each other. So good. Aaron Salah, who came on this show as a friend of mine now, told me that in Samoan culture, they call it the va. And the mm. va was like the, is the space between, mm. right? The energetic space between. Yeah. So we have you, we have me, and we have the va, wow. right? And he talked about cultivating the va. It's always cultivating the space between. And when the space between the va is strong, wow, then we're strong. Love that. Right? So when managers or leaders or whoever in the organization is looking at this, they're typically looking at you as the person. Yep. I'm looking at the va. Yep. I'm, and the va is actually felt. Yes. So I'm feeling the va. Are we in or are we not? And when we are, we can actually sit here and discuss things in a our like spiritual self-led way. Yeah. And lead toward, you know, re- because it's not about, I heard the saying is really great. It's like, it's not about resolving or solving. It's about dissolving. When the va and the connection is strong enough, the issue dissolves every issue that we're seeing that are between people and so on are a result of the va being weak a disconnection in this relationship yep because if the relationship field was strong then you see the result of that which is engagement so good yeah the result of disengagement is disconnection yep so you look and go i have engagement or i have disengagement that's just the effect that has nothing to do with the cause right. whatsoever. Right, right. So you're measuring the fact. Yes. But you're not measuring the cause. Yeah, yeah. You're measuring that tangible outcome you see, but not... Is a connected That's right. leader. That's what I feel like right now. Yep, I think you're right. And I think this idea of connection is more important than ever because we experienced a lack of, right? I think during remote lockdowns and all that, I hope people recognized that absence of and now appreciate it more. And maybe there's an, an opening for it that wasn't there before. Well, that's the hard piece, right? Is because as a baby, we need our caregivers to yeah. regulate and soothe. It's co-regulation. Yeah. A baby cries on a plane. Every single woman on there understands. My baby starts crying. How are you going to talk to this baby? Right. Talk to my baby. Like It's okay. It's going to be okay. Yeah. The voice. Yeah. The, what's the yeah. voice? What's that the tone? That high-pitched Oh, yeah, it's, okay. it's yeah, yeah. That's called prosody, right? Mm. It's like the volume, the tone, the intonation, and the, the prosody yeah. of the voice, right? Every woman how understands to how to yep. do that, yep. right? It's a that's the co-regulation piece. Yeah. But here's the thing: what if the mother is so stressed out, or they have no capacity on their own to be able to help that mm-hmm. child? Mm-hmm. What if the father, the same mm-hmm. way, the caregivers, and so on? Now this child doesn't have. Mm-hmm the ability to co-regulate with somebody else. It has typically goes, you soothe me, you soothe me, you yeah. soothe me. They show it very clearly in those, the research trials where it's like Edtronic yeah. will have the mother like just turn away from the baby mm. and the baby will instantly wow. become shamed and cry and, wow. and spaz out. And then they just turn back. So that loss of connection right there is super noticeable. But what about for people that have never had a very solid co-regulation in their life? Yep. It's how you develop yeah. being able to self-regulate. You yeah. go externally to other things, yep. to the phone, to the drinking, to the gambling, to the sex, whatever it may be, yep. and so on. And then you have COVID, which now 
physically separates yeah. you from everything. So even the ones that are kind of awkward and like don't really know how right. to do it are now completely can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And now you say, okay, no, 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 everything's good now because you're not going to die. Yeah. So let's all go back. Right. And then what we have is even people like myself who are, I would say myself is pretty good in a social situation, even thinking like, mm, I, really wanna, I don't know if I want to go, and avoiding things, which means to me, like, wow, people who are uncomfortable in that already, what are they going to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. So when we get hurt emotionally in, groups or relationally then a lot of times that requires a group mm-hmm. to heal mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. right to me it's it's a lot of the growth piece is really healing mm-hmm. it's your muscle you know you lift weights it muscle breaks down and so on and then it heals back stronger yeah but if it doesn't heal yeah it ain't stronger yeah we have these hr round tables these just groups of hr professionals who get together once a mm-hmm. month and you know, at first we thought we had to over-engineer it and give it an agenda and all that. And we don't. We just give them lunch, which th- th- that doesn't even really matter. But it's a space. Yeah. And they fill it with connection. Or we just sit back and just kind of like watch it happen. There's this warmth and this energy in the room. Seriously, it's like a highlight of the month. We do different ones, but each one convenes once a month. Sometimes it's at our office. Sometimes it's oh. at other workplaces. We've done it at childcare facilities. We've done it out at Kualoa. We've done it all kinds of different places. And each one has a different energy because of where it's at and the way it shows up. But every time it's about connection. And we've never said that's what it was. But it was these group of people who just, you know, people yeah. from the west side going all the way out to Kualoa to, like, connect for an hour and a half. It ends up going two hours, two and a half hours because people just want to be together. Yeah. What if it was run like a retreat then? Like a full day. Yes. I think there's an opportunity to do those kinds of convenings in 2024. That's part of this. Like to connect and recharge. You know what I mean? Because that's kind of what I was thinking too. What's the self-care for the HR? And I'm not talking just about going to get a massage or like, you know, it's like what will actually build capacity and healing and growth between that person and themselves. Yeah. And I think this is part of the first step of that is sort of maybe the validation of being together and hearing shared experiences and not feeling so isolated. That's the beginning of what these convenings, I think, are doing. But yeah, it'd be super cool to do it on a larger scale so that it's not just that first step. We might be able to bring them through a whole whole process, maybe over a weekend or a day or something. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And then the ongoing reinforcement of it. Keep those groups together so that they can continue to care for each other and support each other. Yeah. Or they can convene on their own. Yes. You build a relationship and... Yep. And do it intentionally. And yeah. then people can have connection and they can take that yeah. with them. Yep. Kind of do the immersion piece and then that, let them do the ongoing reinforcement together. Lots of ideas Lots going of here. good ideas. No shortage of good ideas. I love that. So I wore my shirt here. I wear it quite a bit on this show, but I like it because, yeah. you know, our, our friend, the late Pono Shim, came up with it. And I wanted to know if you have a favorite story maybe that you could share that would show us what Ponoshim meant to you? I was at an event. It was one evening and it was a small event and I'm an introvert (laughs) pretty deeply. And so I went to this event by myself, didn't know anybody. So I was pretty quiet and Pono, I had heard a lot about Pono and I was very curious. And so he started talking, we were talking about economic development type stuff and entrepreneurship and he just had this way, as you know, of like just speaking to your soul. And so I was sitting in the front and I just found myself like leaning, literally leaning in and just like locking eyes with him. And it's just almost off-putting, like how 
deeply he was speaking to me. Still, all these years later, don't know how to put words to that, but it was unsettling to say the least. So we got finished with the talk and then, you know, everybody kind of stands up and, and he asked, are there any questions? And nobody had any questions. And he joked that night and joked many times after that. Most people don't have thoughts now because you're all going to go like, think about this and come up with a million questions after. So sure enough, that's sort of how we left the evening. And then he got up and he was talking to the people who put together the event and I was leaving and I was just in this kind of like the word I always told him about was like this stew, like all these ingredients were in my head and things had just been like stirred up. And I was having a hard time even thinking straight, honestly, it was really an odd experience, but I was feeling really raw and I walked by him. And as I walked by him, he was, he was talking with somebody and they were engaged in a conversation and out of the corner of my eye, he stops and he comes over to me and he looks me straight in the eye and he says just with this like laser focus he says I see you and I just lost it and and I just started crying and he hugged me and he hugged me for a long time after that and I didn't know him he didn't know me and I tried for so long afterwards to figure out why that was so important and there was so much there like I was you know just to be I think to sum it up, to be seen deeply, all the way deeply by someone that I respected without even knowing was transformational for me. It was a, it was a, you know, top five important things that happened to me in my life. And I always, I talked to him about if I was an artist, I always wished I could draw this, but it's very clear to me. For some reason, it was about like a gourd like an Ipu type thing. And somehow it was like this really bright light was shown into it. And on the inside, it was very dark. And somehow that light just bounced around and refracted inside that Ipu and just came out thousandfold. And that's what my friendship and my experience with Pono was. What part of you felt the most seen? that maybe wasn't being seen or didn't feel seen before? There were two pieces. One was the hurt piece of me. Yeah. That I had not, that I worked so hard for so long to not let anybody see. And yet without even speaking to me, he saw it like that and he loved it, like genuinely cared for it. But then there was also this really important piece around Hawaii and for so long, knowing feeling like an outsider in Hawaii but feeling so passionate about this place that is my home that my children are born in that I choose to live in every day and something about feeling seen by that was really important for me like a sense that you belong yeah yeah for the first time at that point in easily about 15 years yeah and a sense that you can bring all of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Without judgment. Yep. Exactly. In the sense that you can grow and that you felt connected to the community. Completely. In a way I had not ever. Yeah. What were the other four things you said top five? What were the other four? Oh, the birth of my kids, um, marrying my husband, it's those, the, all three of them, all three of my kids' births were very separate and very different. 
So each one of those is a very specific event. And then marrying my husband. So that theme is, is pretty strong in you. Showing up with your full self. Yeah. Being able to grow and feeling a part of the community. Yeah. Like you belong. Yeah. What, what other stories do you have from him that you might want to share? That's probably too hard to share. Um, the last time I talked to him was difficult for a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, his cancer diagnosis and my cancer diagnosis went two very different directions. And because all I knew about cancer was that you would get through it. That's how I approached his. And so we talked a lot about treatment and we talked a lot about, you know, the details and what it would be like. And early on, you know, there was signs that it was all going to go the right way and that his experience would be similar to mine. And so I remember those conversations like, yeah, you know, we beat it. We're good. And he would talk about feeling strong. And then there was a distinct conversation we had where it was clear that it wasn't. And I just remember thinking like, his story was different because it had to be because it was him. Of course it was different, right? He knew how that was going to end. And I just remember him saying that it was okay. He knew that all of the work that he had done was bigger than he was. And I remember him saying, it's going to be okay. And I know that it's going to, it's the work is going to continue. And this, I was here for a time to get it all started it. And now it'll continue. And I uh, just remember that conversation and how at peace he was. And knowing, I mean, what an amazing legacy, right? And I just remember being so grateful that he knew. And that was hard for him to be, to know that. It took him a long time to get to a place where he could at least glimpse how important the work was. And how much impact he'd had. We talked about that a lot. I don't think he... He didn't know for a long time. Or wasn't willing to acknowledge the impact that he had. But that last conversation he did. And that was important. So if you had to put his impact into a story. What would it be? It's the Ipu. It's the light. And if you could talk to him right now. And give him a message. What would you say? I talk to him all the time. I struggled with that a lot. And I told him towards the end, I said, I, that there's just so much I need to say and I don't know how to say it. But we also talked about there's some things that, you know, words like exist on one plane and our friendship existed on a different plane. And so when I would say there's just not words, he would say, I know there's not, there's not, there aren't words. So I kind of let go of that and, and just sort of said like, I don't know what I would say because there's not words. He knew, he knows. So I, I see him in rainbows all the time. So I just say hi and he knows he, he sees the beautiful things that are happening. He sees the hard times that our community is going through. And I know he's there and I, I see glimpses of him and things that people are saying and things that leaders are starting to talk about. And I know he's, I know he's here. And you know, he's proud of you. Yeah. I just wanted to acknowledge you for your strength, your ability to endure, your willingness to come and share this space with me, uh, your friendship for so many years, mm -hmm. and your beautiful spirit. 
Thank you, Evan. Thanks for this conversation. I didn't know where it was going to go, but it went where it needed to go. So thank you. Thank you. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.